across America were horrified by the savagery of a faceless killer. In the wake of this bizarre rampage, he vanished. Now, after more than a decade of silence, he has come out of hiding. Chainsaw Massacre 2, The Buzz is Back, directed by Toby Hooper. Hey everyone, and welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum. The small time podcast is always getting in the ass from the government every single time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and this week we are back on the road, road tripping through the backwaters of Texas. This time to talk about Toby Hooper's, excuse me. This time to talk about Toby Hooper's off-the-wall follow-up to the greatest horror movie of all time. This week, we're here to talk about a much different movie with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Now, I can't do this alone. I need someone by my side here. I need an LG to my stretch. So this week, I am joined by uh, a consistent panel, one of our constant panelists, Real fun addition to the show, uh, and also the co-host of his own podcast, The Dissent Franchise Pod, Mr. Stephen Foxworthy. How are you, you big lug? I'm doing all right. Look, darling, I made you a little fry house. Oh, I would, you know, if someone made me a fry house. That's that's the secret, really. Like, that's really when you know it's is. love. Yeah, really. It really is. Get you get you someone who makes you a fry house. That's yep. that's really what we're saying here, people. Yeah, that's the secret to life right there. That's it. <laughs> the secret is the meat. That's it. The secret is the meat. I've always had an eye for good prime meat. Runs in the family. I love this town because they love prime meat. Now, would you say, like, is this movie pro or anti-vegan? Because it does love the meat, but could it have an anti-meat message? I would argue the first one is probably the more um, anti-meat, the, the more pro-vegetarian, pro-vegan uh, film. And I think Hooper more or less admi- has admitted to that uh, or did later in his life uh, was pretty much like, yeah, no, that's that's kind of what we were going for. He's like, this movie's about meat. Right. I think this when he was doing press. Whereas I think this I think this movie is about a lot of other things. In some ways, mm-hmm. I think this is Toby Hooper's um, They Live, mm-hmm. uh, kind of his screed on uh, anti-Reagan policies, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak, in a lot of ways, which I find Ooh. deeply fascinating. So Coming hot with that take right there. Oh. Excellent. 
We will get to that. But before Absolutely. we dive into all of our takes, let's let's give our initial thoughts. Let's let's talk about our own like personal histories with this one. First time we watched it and kind of what springs to mind as we rewatch it. Like, what do we think of it? So, Stephen, take it away, dude. Uh, so I didn't, uh, as I've mentioned on this podcast, I think every damn time I come on, I, I'm, I'm a late bloomer to the horror game. Uh, didn't start really watching horror films until probably within the last five years, mm-hmm. uh, really getting into them. Uh, and so this was one I kind of always like put off, put off just cause I don't really do gore. I'm not a big gore guy. Um, but then, and you know, I'd heard a lot about it. A lot of people really love it. It's one of the greatest horror films of all time. So October 2020, the local drive-in theater is doing a marathon of Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Halloween. Uh, so I'm like, let's go watch all of those. Because I, I don't think... Um, uh, I had seen the other two, but I hadn't seen Texas Chainsaw. Mm-hmm. So I go, I watch. It's probably the best way to watch that movie for the first time. Uh, but there was a dude dressed as Leatherface walking up and down the aisles with That's a, awesome. a running chainsaw. So every like 10 minutes, I couldn't hear the movie because there's a guy with a chainsaw walking right in front of me. That's less awesome. Right. So I was like, well, I have to watch this again. So about a week later or so, I, I rewatched it and I was like, OK, that's phenomenal. And are you talking like, was this watching the original movie or yes. was this watch? OK. This was the original. So I finished the original and I'm like, okay, well, what's the sequel to this look like then? Because it's it's 12 years later. What is Toby Hooper doing with the sequel to this? Uh, so I watched that and I did not get it. I liked it, but I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Like it was kind of one of those like, this is good, but this is very much not the original. Like I don't know what he's doing here. And it took me another rewatch to go, okay, I get what's happening here. And it's just kind of grown on me with every subsequent rewatch. I think this was rewatch three or four for me, Mm -hmm. uh, for this show. And it, it just, I just think this movie is so much fun. I I have a blast when I watch this one. Absolutely. So how did you deal with that initial whiplash? Cause I would say watching one and two in succession when you don't Mm. know that it's like a huge tonal shift is going to cause some like, just some real cognitive dissonance. Like, how did you handle that? Um, I mean, on the one hand, two of my favorite horror movies are Evil Dead 2 and Gremlins 2, uh, which are two sequels that kind of take a sharp left turn into horror comedy after the mm-hmm. original. Uh, so in, in some ways, I was like, OK, it seems kind of like what he's doing. But on the other hand, I didn't really get the humor very much. So it was kind of like, I like what's going on here. I appreciate like the Tom Savini of it all. I appreciate the Jim Sidow of it all. Like I, I appreciate what Hooper's doing, but it didn't really connect the way that I wanted it to the way that, you know, my friend Sam or my friend Tucker would say like, you know, stretch is the greatest final girl of all time. And I'm like, uh, is she though? Mm-hmm. Um, but then on rewatch, I'm like, no stretch fucking rules. This movie rules. Like it, it took me, I had to get, I had to get my headspace to where the movie was. I had to meet the movie where it was at as opposed to where I thought I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I did that, I just had a blast. Like I just yeah. had so much fun. And I think that was what I needed to do to get to that point. Now I'm not saying this is going to be true for everybody. I've talked to people who don't like this one at all and that's fine. But for me, like it's the original, it's this one. And then there's a very steep drop off in quality mm-hmm. for the rest of the franchise to my thought, to my thinking yeah. again, your mileage may vary with that opinion, but that's that's me. So I would say of the big four of like Halloween, Friday the 13th, 
A Nightmare in Elm Street and Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the big like the the franchises that have like clo- ten entries or close to ten entries mm-hmm. or are the very iconic ones. This is the most up and down. I would say it is the best original movie of the four. Like I would actually rank this at this point in front of Halloween. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I think it's that good. I, I do think it's the greatest horror movie. Of all time. And that doesn't mean Halloween is bad. That means like, you know, it is like, I've said this before. You can show Carpenter's Halloween to like a modern day audience, like today's teenagers. And I could see a lot of them maybe getting bored, maybe Mm -hmm. taking out their phones and maybe kind of like just kind of screw, you know, because it's such a methodical movie. Doesn't mean it's not brilliant, but it's just like a very different kind of filmmaking where I think the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre like grabs you from Jump Street with the uh, opening images and oh my word and, and the audio like that that cacophony of, of sound and it just and then it's just unrelenting from the thirty minute mark on right and even everything in between it just builds to that moment in such a way that you always feel the sense of dread mm-hmm. um, but as a series it is the most up and down. It's, like, it's wildly uneven. Yeah. Wildly so, yeah. I would say. Um, where I don't think there's a clunker in the original Elm Street franchise. I think that pretty much all the Friday the 13th movies, you're going to get um, kind of like a it's like a Five Guys burger. Like it's none of them are amazing, but you're going to get something really solid every single time. And even the Halloweens, I think all of them have some entertainment value. There, the Texas Chainsaw. I have to say, I have like what sparked us doing this franchise was just like watching, rewatching them in random order over the spring and being like, even the ones I don't love, like there's something about them that's at least watchable. So it should be fascinating to go through, to go through all of them. Absolutely, I, I can't wait to to hear and participate in in the, some of the ones you have coming up for sure. Oh, we'll have a good time. Oh yeah, but I no know doubt. with this one. I am 90% sure that I actually saw this one before the original. Like, I think this would have been like a Saturday night sleepover movie with friends. Uh, I know the third one is the first one I watched because I remember the advert for it with like the lady in the lake and the chainsaw coming out and Leatherface catching it and being like, what is this? I need to see it. Um, so I think I watched the like original trilogy in reverse order. Nice. Um, that said, I know there was a time where I watched this movie at least once a weekend with my friends Ben and Steve for almost a year. And my friend Ben, uh, who sadly is no longer with us, hmm. is one of like a trio of people that exposed me to punk rock when I was a junior in high school. And I just remember him giving me like a mixtape with like Minor Threat and Bad Brains and Bad Religion and bands like that on it and being like, you should listen to some of this stuff and like becoming fast friends with him. And then after high school, just randomly bumping into him on a street in Boston and him being like, Hey, there's a show you should go to. Um, and then randomly like just always being with him, like every weekend we would end up at our friend Steve's house who his mom just like up and moved and left him the house one day. Um, so you have this like 20, something early 20s kid in the mid 90s who had all of a sudden has like a rent-free house and 
every Friday night, every Saturday night was like a, you know, punk show in the basement, like a potluck, vegan potluck going on. We would prank call women that would never give us the time of day because this is like <laughs> pre-cell phone, pre-caller ID. Right. And, the golden age, some might say. Oh, yeah. And we were like, they were like not like mean-spirited prank calls, like nothing sure. super misogynistic or um, kind of like untoward. They were just like being just random weirdos and then hanging up and giggling. Um, and then just like, after all that, we would throw on like seven inch records of these like tiny Canadian bands, like the M blankets. Like we would find these little records and be like, this is the best shit ever. And finally by like one in the morning when it was just down to like three or four of us, we would throw on in some rotation, we would throw on the original Texas chainsaw massacre, uh, this late eighties kind of like sexploitation slasher movie, the Invisible Maniac, which hmm. uh, starred adult film sensation Savannah, mm-hmm. uh, pre-adult films, and then this movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So I think I've seen this movie more than any other movie I've ever watched, and that includes like Star Wars and Rocky, which wow. people who know me well know like that is a lot of watches. Um, but what's really weird is it never hit me how dramatic a tonal shift this was from one to the other. Like it just never registered until a few years ago. Oh, like, oh yeah, this movie is like vastly different I just like didn't watch movies in that context. I was just like, I like this movie. I will watch it and I will watch it over and over. And it just tickles me. It didn't hit that it was like a straight up horror comedy in the vein of Return of the Living Dead or Evil Dead 2 until like probably a few years ago. And now when I rewatch it, it hit me like it's kind of a super lightweight of a movie. Like it is a nothing burger of a movie altogether. Like just not a lot happens like You have like half the movie taking place in the radio station and then the other half in this abandoned theme park and like Dennis Hopper shows up and just like snorts a lot of cocaine and revs up his chainsaws. And, you know, to me, I don't think he was ever hired for the movie. I just think one day (laughs) he showed up on set and Toby Hooper's like fucking run with it. Right. Um, So I... I have so much nostalgia for this movie because it reminds me of friends that are no longer with me and I love it dearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, my God, sometimes that last 50 minutes, like I paused it for the, like preparing for the show and I'm like, Oh my God, they're at this amusement park for like almost an hour. Yeah. It's almost half the movie. Yeah. Like it's, it's wild. literally half the movie. It is That's half wild. the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about how this movie was made before we let's talk about it. like, okay, Absolutely. We, we went pretty deep with the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre and folks, Rightly you're going to, so. you're going to find this hard to believe, but a Toby Hooper production was troubled. <gasps> no, yeah, it's going to be, say it ain't so Mike, say it I ain't know. so. It's like, <laughs> it was not an oil, a well oiled machine. 
That that's too 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 much suspension of disbelief. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> crazy. So we we talked a little bit about this in our initial movie, but like you know, I'll ask you, Steve. Like, what is your impressions of like Hooper as a filmmaker? Um, I am not super well versed on Hooper. Not as much as I would like to be. At some point, I'm gonna like buckle down and kind of hit his oeuvre pretty hard. But I've seen. His Texas Chainsaw movies, I have seen Life Force, and I have seen Poltergeist. And I think that's about it. Like, I've seen the the big ones <clears throat> that he's done. Um, he doesn't strike me as the most organized filmmaker in the world, uh, which I think is the thing that I, gets him in the most trouble uh, on these films that he's constantly, like, getting kicked off of and whatnot. But he's got... I think contrary to popular belief, I think he does have a vision and he does have a style. I just don't think he's always really good about communicating that to the people he's working with. Maybe due in part to who he he was as a person, maybe due in part to his lack of organization, whatever. Like, I think he's got a vision. He's got a style. Look at this movie. The dude has a style. Um, but like, I don't know that that's always clear to the people he's collaborating with and to the people that he's working with, unfortunately. It's it's not like though when you have like a John Carpenter like you can put on a John Carpenter movie and be like that's John Carpenter right right um, Wes Craven like by and large although he has a lot of like different under the horror umbrella like there's a lot of different oeuvres there like you mm-hmm. can still watch a Wes Craven movie and be like that feels like a Wes Craven movie um, with Hooper he definitely has an eye for capturing some like really wonderful shots and moments. But I think to your point, communicating that to everybody else, Mm. um, like sometimes the performances get lost along the way. Um, I've been, because we were covering these two movies, like I tried to fill in some of my Hooper gaps and I was able to do that on a few different movies. So I was able to like recently watch eaten alive uh, as well as Invaders from Mars. So I think I've seen every, almost everything in that stretch from the original Chainsaw through this movie, except for Light Force, which I've tried to start a couple times, but just like haven't, like I just put it on way too late at night and it feels too much like a fever dream. And I'm like, I am in no way in the right headspace or energetic enough to keep up with what this movie is putting down right now. Both times I've watched Life Force, it's been in a similar kind of situation. It's like nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night. And I'm like, let's watch Life Force. And I get into it and I'm like, and I just kind of surrender to it at that point. I'm just like, all right, I guess I'm in this. I guess we're, I guess we're watching Life Force right now. Let's just, let's just go. I don't know. (laughs) The, the, The best analogy I can make to coming off the success of, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Coming off the success of that, it feels a lot like post-Blair Witch Project in 1999, which is another like tiny independent movie that goes on to have this massive impact um, in the culture, at cinemas, like it rakes in a ton of money, and yet just like Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Merrick, like never able to like truly capitalize on it. Just like with the Blair Witch Project, although they continue to work, they're never able to really truly hit the superstar directing status that they should have been afforded given the popularity of that movie and the impact it had. Just like Heather Donahue and Josh Leonard and uh, 
Michael, I can't think of his last name. That goes to show right there, Mikey. None of them, like Josh Leonard continues to work, but like he's probably had him and Eduardo Sanchez like directing, like doing a lot of television work have had the most success, but not what they should have had. Post-Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like no one really capitalizes from the success of that movie. Which is a tragedy, quite frankly, because again, I think, Hooper's got a voice. He's got a style like he's got something to contribute. Obviously, he's this Texas Chainsaw is like such a calling card movie. Like you just show up and say, hi, I'm the guy who directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And you'd think people would be like, right this way, sir. Here's the suitcase full of money. Um, but I think it it partially is the fact that it plays in like art, like like kind of the grindhouse cinemas and the drive ins. Like it's popular with a very niche subset of the culture. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we're still four years away from Halloween, like the horror slasher boom hasn't really hit yet. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people don't really know what they've got until they've got it. And by the time Halloween rolls around, they're off on another trajectory altogether. Yeah. And Hooper, unfortunately, kind of gets left in the dust. It's bigger than niche, though. Because it's a $30 million movie in 1970s dollars. And okay. that is like a lowball estimate. Like it was at the time, like until Halloween came out it was like considered the most successful independent movie of all time and you have like someone like bob clark who does black christmas around like 1975 and he gets to go on and have this like pretty varied career where he does like death dream um i think children play with dead things is before black christmas but you know within a few years he's doing porkies and he's doing uh, a christmas story uh, mm. Which, God, one day we got to do a Bob Clark retrospective. God love him. Um, That'd be fun. Good old Bob. You know, but it feels like, like Gunnar Hansen talked about how, like, nobody wanted to take a meeting with him. Marilyn Burns is kind of shut out. Um, it felt do like... Hmm? I was just going to ask, do you think it's the, like, the controversial nature of the original film? Like, yeah. no one knew if it was, like, was it based on a true story? Is this a snuff film? Like, what the hell are we watching kind of a thing? It just felt like from what I've gathered and read, it just felt like every studio was like, this is too grimy. Like, this is not the business that we want to be in. Mm. It To them, it felt a lot like porn, um, which is ironic because it's at a time when like, you know, like obviously the folks that distributed Deep Throat distribute mm -hmm. the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But it's at a time when like couples would get together and be like, all right, honey, let's go to the movies and like watch behind the green door with Marilyn Chambers. Like it'd be no thing. I mean, you see in Taxi Driver, you mm -hmm. know, like it's you see how that's played out. And it wasn't like too absurd that somebody might actually do that. Um, I mean, so, Debbie but, Does Dallas was a crossover hit mm -hmm, in the 70s, yeah. right? So, I mean, that's... But, but the, the feeling is like it's too subversive, it's too dirty, it's too grimy, it's too transgressive. And there is the idea of like, can a person who makes a movie like this actually know what they're doing? Mm. And that's the question that comes up time and time again with Hooper. Like, are these happy accidents or does he know what he's doing? And it kind of feels like somewhere in the middle. So his first movie, Hooper's first movie after Texas Chainsaw Massacre feels like a spiritual sequel, Eaten Alive, which if you haven't seen it, it's on Shudder right now. It's definitely worth a watch. It feels like a direct sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre in that it's like also really grimy. It's also like about backwoods horror and like warning city slickers to kind of like not come in and mess with these rural psychopaths. 
it's two years before Carpenter's Halloween, but this feels like a slasher movie. Like you have this like raving, psychotic, absolutely gutting people. Like it almost feels like a Herschel Gordon Lewis level of bloodshed in this oh, movie. Wow. He's like gutting people with this um, two-handed scythe and then feeding them to like a giant gator that lives in the swamp behind his motel. Um, it's really fun. It's shot on a studio lot rather than a set. It has probably some of the best bisexual lighting you'll ever see in a movie. It has a young Robert Englund looking super hot in this movie and playing just an absolute sexual deviant. Um, It feels like more of a direct exploitation film than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, it's really sleazy. Um, Marilyn Burns returns for it. And because Marilyn Burns is in it, she has to get hit over the head and put in a burlap sack and tied up like that's just her thing. (laughs) This is just what you do when you show yep. up on a Toby Hooper set, right. Marilyn. Sorry. But Hooper actually like walks off the set prior to completing it because he's clashing with the studio. Like they want more nudity. They want more violence. And he's like, I don't really want this. Mm-hmm. So he actually leaves. Like Burns actually talks about the climactic scene. Like she's kind of directing it. Like she's kind of like telling everyone what to do. Mm-hmm. Um But after that, his run after Eaten Alive, like he gets picked up to do Salem's Lot, which Mm. to me is like the best made for TV horror movie of all time. Still have not seen it. Still need to check that out. You should definitely add that to your watch. Like definitely grab a cold one, make a nice meal, set aside a few hours. It's responsible for being the first thing to ever scare me. Uh, The jailhouse scene, like I was way too young to watch it. My cousin warned me. And then it ha- when the jailhouse jump scare occurs, I ran upstairs like crying and hid under my bed because I was so oh, terrified. Yeah, um, he does the Fun House, which is like a really bonkers but fun eighty slasher movie, and then he does Poltergeist, which is a legendary film. I'm lower on Poltergeist than most people. Oh, um, okay. But I think when we did it, we covered it. I I came back around on it. So, again, Poltergeist feels like a movie that should have launched Hooper right into the A-list. Like, hey, Mm -hmm. he finally gets his PG rating for a horror movie. It's a massive hit. It's a lot of fun. It's got styles galore. Um, But instead, it nearly kills. It basically stalls his career. It pretty much kills it dead. And why is it, like, to me, in... This always comes up, and we covered it a lot more in depth than our Poltergeist episode. I would direct folks back to it. Good but, episode, you know, by the way. Thank you. I, I feel like it's more of a Spielberg than a Hooper movie. Whereas I would disagree and say it's more of a, of a Hooper than a Spielberg. Um, so this is the 40th anniversary of Poltergeist. And there was a, uh, a letter from Spielberg that went around to that was kind of going around Twitter. I, I have a, a copy of it in the, in the notes here, but I'll, I'll go ahead and, and read kind of the letter. It's addressed June 2nd, 1982 um, addressed to the MGM studios office of Toby Hooper. Uh, Dear Toby, regrettably, some of the press has misunderstood the rather unique creative relationship, which you and I shared throughout the making of Poltergeist. I enjoyed your openness and allowing me as a producer and a writer, a wide berth for creative involvement, just as I know you were happy with the freedom you had to direct Poltergeist so wonderfully. 
Through the screenplay, you accepted a vision of this very intense movie from the start, and as the director, you delivered the goods. You performed responsibly and professionally throughout, and I want to wish you great success on your next project. Let's hope that Poltergeist brings as much pleasure to the general public as we experienced in our mutual effort. Sincerely, Steven Spielberg. I don't buy it. (laughs) I don't, and for all the reasons, I, I would say that it, to your point about it being a Hooper movie, I think that Hooper had a very unique vision for the movie. I think that Spielberg is the one that conveyed that to the performers. I would agree with that, but I think that Spielberg was willing to work within um, the confines or the vision which that, that Hooper had set up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would still call it a Hooper movie, even if, again... Maybe not the most organized filmmaker, maybe not the best at communicating what he wants. I think Spielberg kind of is a little better about that. Uh, And so maybe it is Spielberg's involvement that helps to Mm -hmm. make that movie better. But I would still call it a Hooper movie. Right. And that third act is pure Hooper. I would say like that that third act. But there are a lot of Spielbergian touches in that movie. It is like a lot warmer and more optimistic than anything Hooper had done to that point. Yeah. I mean, that's the Amblin effect, though. Like, it's hard to get away from that. I mean, even something like Gremlins or Goonies, like Spielberg is as much associated with those as Richard Donner and Joe Dante, respectively. Mm -hmm. Like, they like he gets kind of a like that's kind of the thing he brings to a lot of projects. And Mm -hmm. like his voice comes through even in the films that he's producing. But no one asks, you know, did Steven Spielberg direct Gremlins or did Steven Spielberg direct Goonies? No, absolutely not. They only do that with this movie because I think because of Toby Hooper's um, reputation, as it were. Because of that, because Spielberg's on set a lot during it, but whatever it is, like whatever we might think, the Mm -hmm. general consensus at the time is that it's a Spielberg movie and not a Hooper movie. And it really kills Hooper's career to the degree that like, Canon basically said it's kind of like with John Carpenter and the thing like once Mm. the thing tanks like Carpenter has said like if that movie had done well my whole career would be different Mm -hmm. and the the really sad irony here is like Hooper does a movie that does not just well but gangbusters oh yeah and it still kills his career be and and I would I would chalk that up to that narrative by and mm -hmm. large is my thinking so canon throws him a lifeline and they say we're going to give you a three picture deal we're going to give you bigger budgets than anything you've ever had uh we're going to let you do the kind of movies you want to do however one of those three movies has to be texas chainsaw massacre 2 which hooper was originally going to just produce Mm -hmm. um co-write and produce the movie so he gets his three picture deal and he does light force which, again, I still haven't seen. I think its reputation has come around. It's, and, it's okay. It's pretty good. Yeah. And he remakes uh, a 1953 science fiction movie, Invaders from Mars, which th- I think both are on Shudder right now. I just watched Invaders from Mars. That is Hooper's Amblin movie. Like, mm. that is a really fun PG sci-fi horror movie with, like, awesome effects from Stan Winston. I mean, think like Mars effects, like uh, Mars attacks, like think that kind of 
special effect. Um, it's very much in that vein. It has a very creature, uh, uh, I'm sorry, invasion of the body snatchers feel to it. It's a lot of fun. It's got a great uh, kid performance in Hunter Car- uh, Carson. Mm. Uh, Karen Black shows up as like the really supportive teacher. It's got a great kind of like pull the rug out from under you ending. It looks gorgeous. Like I was stunned watching it when it went on shutter. I'm like, I'm going to watch this tonight just to prep for this show. And I'm like, holy shit, like this movie's a ton of fun. I should order the Scream Factory Blu-ray. For I'll have this to look movie. at that. Yeah. Um, I think that would be a, a, a great gateway horror movie for a lot of people. And it very much feels like an Amblin um, kids on a kid on an adventure movie. Really, really enjoyed it. Hmm. Uh, Bud Court shows up in it. It's like a nasty cop. Like it's great. Love and it's Bud got Court. some like wonderful cheesy, but also cool looking. Like when you're inside the uh, alien vessel or borrowed underground, like it's really cool how the special effects come out. But long and short of it is like Life Force, $12, $25 million budget. Invaders from Mars, $12 million budget. These movies are not hit movies. Like they right. probably pull in less than half altogether. So for the third movie, Canon is basically tightening the purse strings or like you've gone from 25 million to 5 million for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which sounds like, hey, it's almost, you know, 50 times the budget of the first movie. But at this point, you know, it's not enough to really execute the vision. Hooper's working on a bigger scale now as a director. Mm-hmm. He's used to certain, like, making films at certain budgets. He knows what he needs to make the films the way he wants to make them. It's going to require more than it did when he was first starting out. Yeah. You, you've you gone from a crew, like the first movie, super small cast, and like a handful of crew members, to there's about 135 people working on this movie. So it's a actual production at that point. Mm-hmm. You're no longer the tiny indie that could. So the original idea that Hooper and Kim Hankel, the co-writer of the first movie come up with is beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love that title so much. It is incredible. (laughs) Um, It definitely has the humor that Hooper wanted in the movie. Like it's going to go that route. Mm -hmm. Um, A frequent guest on our show in the early days, like Nat Bremar has a great article on Wicked Horror, which I should link to, that talks a bit about this. Like, not a lot known about the script of the movie, but basically, instead of being a family of cannibals, it's going to be a whole village of Sawyers at that point. It was going to be over the top and like a real satire. Uh, Bremar writes in his article how the movie is kind of a response to Motel Hell which itself is a response to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So this would have been like a satire of a satire. Just a beautiful Ouroboros folding in on itself. Absolutely. Like like a lovely daisy. So so we get into like the making of this movie where we got to cast it and, you know, we need our leather face back, right? Absolutely. Gunnar Hansen, like, step back into this role, right? Let's, we're going to, obviously, like, now it's going to be your chance to cash in. Like, the first movie made a ton of money. You didn't make anything from it. So, Gunnar Hansen, we're going to pay you like the icon you are. We're going to offer you scale plus 10 for your agent. (laughs) 
Gunnar Hansen says, well, I don't have an agent. They're saying, oh, even better. We'll offer you scale and we're going to pull back the 10% extra that we offered you. So <laughs> Hansen is like, pound sand, I'm not doing this. Right. They don't even reach out to Marilyn Burns, who in the original concept, like I should say, Canon like basically looks at what Hooper wants to do with Beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they're like, we need to take away your cocaine. Like, basically, please, <laughs> Mr. Hooper, we, we need to cut you off your the, the Colombian nose candy right now. And because uh, uh, Marilyn Burns was slated to return, for, would have been returning for that. And even um, Ed Neal as the hitchhiker, even though he was run over and squashed by a semi Mm-hmm. you know by an 18 wheeler he would have been back too in the original idea for it um don't know how that would happen but whatever sure so gunner hansen is out and bill johnson who was like a local actor in the austin scene was in um which i th- like what he does as mm-hmm. leatherface i'm sure we'll get into it a little more later but He's probably my second favorite Leatherface yeah. of, of of the crew of all of the sure. all of the Leatherfaces. He's probably number two mm-hmm. behind Gunnar yeah. Hansen, obviously. Yeah, yeah, he's not bad. I mean, he does something completely different, but it works for this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote from Scott Hilton, who is one of the basic associate producers, and I'm I don't have it directly in front of me, but it basically this was in 1986 in a magazine, I think Cinema Fantastique when promoting the movie is like, eh, you know, no one knows who Gunnar Hansen and Marilyn Burns is. So fuck them. Like that's the long and short of it. Like, there you go. Wow. Okay. Pre-internet, you could get away with things like that. Sure. Okay. But we need, uh, we need a second in command. So we have Bill Mosley. So Bill Mosley had done a, he loved the original movie. He had done for race about a thousand bucks and did a comedy short, the Texas chainsaw manicure which saw like a young woman going into like a nail salon and Leatherface revs up the chainsaw and does her nails. But lo and behold, she does a, he does a beautiful job. (laughs) So, you know, the short film like plays at a bunch of, someone plays it for Toby Hooper. He gets to meet Toby Hooper. He gets to play it for him. And Hooper is like, love this movie. If I ever make a sequel, this is like in the early eighties. If I ever make a sequel, uh, I'll look you up. And Mosley's like, great, doesn't think anything of it. A few years go by. He gets a call. Do you want to appear on in my sequel? And he's like, who are you? Stop pulling my leg. Fuck off. <laughs> he's like a real struggling actor at this time. Right. Hangs up. They call back like, no, really, we want you to appear in this movie. And his agent only gets some scale. And he's like, ah, and, and he's like, I can only get you scale. He's like, well, how much is it? And she's like, it's like 1800 bucks a week. And he's like, man, I'm making 200 a week waiting tables. Like, this is the greatest thing ever. So right. Mosley is in. Caroline Williams is is brought on a stretch. She gives this highly energetic audition where she basically runs, like, screaming into the room, like, barricading the door, just howling. And they're like, you're hired. Like, we can definitely work with this. Dennis Hopper, I still <laughs> don't think think he was actually hired for this movie i think that he just wandered on set high on coke and hooper was like fuck it just roll with it frank booth style just kind of shows up and same year as blue velvet i mean what a year 
I mean, Blue Velvet is mm-hmm. fucking incredible. He does Colors, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and Blue Velvet pretty much back to back to back. What a legend. What a legend. What a stretch. One of the true dirtbags of Hollywood. Like a oh, yeah. serial wife beater. True asshole. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, just not a good dude. He says it's like the he's embarrassed to be in this movie. You have a note here. I do. Um, so he had said that this was the worst film he'd ever appeared in until... 1993, when he shows up in a little film called Super Mario Brothers with Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo, uh, which was the very first movie we ever covered on Disenfranchised. What says Italian plumber like Bob Hoskins? I I don't I honestly don't know. Mm -hmm. Or or John Leguizamo, for that matter. Captain (laughs) Lou Albano was right there. I and you know what? He had already played the role to some acclaim. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know. Yep. I mean, he um, taught me how to do the Mario, and yep. for that, I will ever, I will forever be in his debt. Mm-hmm. Captain Lou, I loved Captain Lou. What a legend! Love the that early guy. days of him getting the gold record smashed over his head by Roddy Piper at the war to settle the score, or the brawl for all. Just oh, the early days of the rock and wrestling connection. Good times. Still get me started. So John Dugan. <laughs> You know, he's looking forward to, like, coming back and sitting in the makeup chair for seven hours, right? Nope. Mm-hmm. nope. So they hire uh, Ken Everett to be the grandfather in this movie. And the quote I read in the wonderful book, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Compiendum, um, he basically says, I hope I don't have flashbacks. Because basically, Ken Everett had spent up to 12 hours at a time, like sitting in the trees in the caves of Vietnam, knife between his teeth, waiting for enemy soldiers to come by so he could slit their throats. So basically, yeah, hardcore dude, like Savini loved him, called him a real trooper. I'm sure he and Savini like swap stories. Sadly, like one of the persons interviewed for the book says like Everett, like wound up, you know, like basically like homeless. Um, probably had PTSD and other mental illnesses and just like, mm. uh, so pretty sad end, but basically mm. they say like just a real trooper during this, this suit shoot, uh, Lou Perryman who plays L, uh, LG, he'd work sound in part one. So he comes back and has like an actual role. He talks about like being in the makeup and driving around Austin at like eight in the morning to set and just freaking people out by hanging, out the window when he was like all carved up. Right, right. Um, so we have our cast. We and also the one returning ooh, member of the cast, Jim Sidow. Jim Sidow, thank you. Yeah, uh, who played the cook in the original, and now he has a name, Drayton Sawyer, in this one. Uh, just like next level scuzzball in this. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. When he says the words prime meat, like I feel grosser than I've ever felt in my mm-hmm. life. Like, and I once played hide and seek in a dumpster, like just <laughs> absolutely just makes my skin crawl every time he says the words prime meat. Oh, when he says, well, at least he took care of my hemorrhoids mm-hmm. uh, after getting the chainsaw between the buttocks. And it's mm-hmm. like a bloody backside. Like, it's wonderful. It's just like <sighs> he kind of looks like if Mr. Rogers one day just said, fuck it, I'm going to wander the earth like Kane. Like he kind of. <laughs> Looks like that. Apt. Apt description, Mike. Very well done. (laughs) 
Um, he does. Like a more world-weary Mr. Rogers, absolutely. Yeah. And it's great having him back because he is wonderful. Like he just he gets the assignment. He fully embraces the ridiculousness of this movie mm-hmm. uh, in a really wonderful way. Um, but we got to make this movie, and Canon basically makes a deal with the Japanese markets where it, it's this is December of '85, and they they're told like if we get this movie in theaters in Japan by September of '86 we get $4 million and Canon is like bleeding money. Like this is basically the, the, the bloom has come off the rose. Like within about three years, they're going to go bankrupt and be bought by MGM. But they tell Hooper, like you will have this movie made. It will be in theaters in Japan by September. It'll be in American theaters, like August 22nd. Uh, It's Christmas. They don't even have a script yet. And they're like, you will, we will straight up murder you. (laughs) <laughs> like they will find you. It'll be like, like Pesci and De Niro meeting in casino in the the desert of Nevada. Like that's right. where you will end up. Like you will dig your own hole if this movie is not out in Japan in September. Um, I mean, it's it's the Golan Globus thing. Like those guys were really like kind of like stereo like very stereotypical like mogul guys. Like they wanted to make as much money as possible. So they do like the Corman thing, make them very cheap, put them out, make as much money off those suckers as they possibly could. Um, and then people started to like get keen to their tricks and that stopped working as well. Uh, and it came off the rose pretty quickly, honestly. Um, so by this point, they're just trying to, to, to stay solvent basically, and not having a, a good deal of success. Uh, there's a, there's a, an absolutely incredible documentary um, made in 2014 about Canon Films called uh, Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. Um, highly recommend. I think it was on Tubi uh, a while ago. I don't know if it still is, but definitely worth checking out if you're interested in kind of the rise and fall of Canon as a studio, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen it. It's a lot of fun. It's a definitely a good watch. Mm-hmm. Um but basically, Hooper has to make this movie at this point. It's Christmas. He doesn't have a writer. Um, so he goes to L.M. Kit Carson, who he had worked with in the Austin film scene. They had actually done a spec script for uh, William Friedkin. It's at one point in the late 70s, like something that ended up not getting made. It's like two elderly women that run some sort of like cannibal factory i am probably misquoting that but they had known one another and actually like hunter carson uh alum kit carson's son was the star of invader for mars like really good child actor like really good mm-hmm. performance and carson at first like doesn't want to make this movie and he has legit reasons he's like it's seven months it's got to be from now it has to be on screen like that's not enough time to make a movie there's slasheritis. Like, I don't want to make this movie. that's like this women hating movie where you just carve up women and it's super misogynistic. I'm not going to be able to top the first movie, no matter what I do. Mm-hmm. And I will never get hired for serious work again. If I make this movie, he just like Hooper with the first movie, it's Christmas season. He's out shopping and he just like when he's walking around the mall, he sees all these yuppies and they're like polo shirts and their sweaters. And they're just like, bag after bag after bag of like just consumables and he's like you know what i've got my villain let's carve up some yuppies so they go in bravo Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Bravo. Well done. Very well. Very good choice. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely talk about the transition from like hippies to yuppies uh, later on when we get it shortly when we get into the movie here. Um, but it's a it's a doomed film shoot. I mean, Canon is on set all the time demanding they get more done, demanding they cut corners, like taking money away, telling them like you have less time to shoot than we originally gave you. Hooper's fighting with them. Um he talks in this book about like the second directing unit and how awful they were. Like there's a lot of footage that just, it was like sequences where like Joe Bob Briggs is uh, an extra in it and he gets killed on screen, uh, but it was unusable. There's mm. a scene where they basically go hunting for meat. They like, basically like they're out to get product mm-hmm. and you have like Leatherface emerging from the back of like the meat van uh, and just starts carving people up like a really bloody gory scene, but it's unusable. Like he just mm. can't do anything with it at all. Um, Cannon is like cutting any corner they can. They talk about how like the last two weeks of filming, there's no craft services. There's no water. There's no one to drive them to and from set, like the 40 mile trip from the hotel to the set for the performers. So like they're literally like driving off the road because it's like four in the morning. They've been working for 20 hours and they're just exhausted. Um, Richard chorus, one of the production managers who had been hired to do like a lot of the art design and oversee crafts and such. Like he has to file suit with Canon um, because they owe him like 30 grand after the film is completed and they only settle because they knew they would have to fly out and appear in court. They're like, shit, just cut them a check. Jeez. Um, oh, they have like a local sculptor, Daniel Williams, like creating the boneyard look. Um, they use a lot of real, like they're using a lot of styrofoam carved skeletons, but also a lot of real skeletons imported from India once again. All of the meat that you see like the intestines and all like the intestines and liver and all of that. When Dennis Hopper like sticks the chainsaw through Daniel Boone, which apparently it's Ronald Reagan's face that he sticks the chainsaw through (laughs) all of that meat was like two weeks old. It was left out. And they talk about how once it was exposed, like nobody would go back on that set for like to clean up. They're like, Nope. Like anyone who would walk in would immediately, just start puking their guts out. I don't blame them. Gosh, yeah. that sounds revolting. Oh, yeah. So, you know, like, similar to the first movie, like, you know, 12 years later, and it's kind of the same problem. You know, people getting super sick on set. This time, they they filmed the back half of the movie. All of the stuff underground is filmed in an old, no longer in use printing press in Austin. Mm-hmm. And Hooper wanted a film in Austin because he felt like his previous movies had gotten away from him for a number of reasons, like too many cooks in the kitchen, people taking away his power, cocaine, um, <laughs> you know, and Hooper's not the healthiest dude. They talk about like everyone's like, I've never seen him eat. He lived on a diet of like Cuban cigars and Dr. Pepper. They Breakfast talk about champions. Yeah. They talk <laughs> about how like PAs would have to like scurry to 7 Eleven at five in the morning and find Dr. Pepper, or he would fly off in a rage. Like, where's my Dr. Pepper? Um, so they're in this printing press. They have to import all these lights for it. 
So it's about 120 degrees. It's, it's summertime in Texas, mm-hmm. but it's already a hundred. It's a hundred degrees outside. It's now like 120 degrees inside. It's hot. There's no circulation. So they bring in these portable AC fans. They fire them up, and all of a sudden, you have these massive wind tunnels. Basically, all of the all of like they talk about all the frankincense that was used in order to create this atmosphere, the dry ice, all of the crud that was probably trapped in the printing press. Mm-hmm. Basically, everybody gets pneumonia. Like oh. Hooper gets it. Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson describes like being in an ice bath one night. His wife toweling him down he has pneumonia all the shit is trapped in his clothes and his mask he's like i'm going to die the only person who didn't get sick was bill mosley um yeah and a lot of it like it's a really chaotic shoot um cannon's cutting the budget but also like hooper's own indecisiveness like he can't figure out what he wants to do at any given shot when the like when uh, bill johnson talks about like getting almost no direction in terms of what he should be doing as Leatherface. Uh, he's like, you know, some directors, like they let you build your character. They tell you what they want. They give you a whole history. And some directors kind of like just fiddle around and figure out how do they want it to look. And like Cooper is pretty much that person. Yeah. So as they're filming, they know they have to hit this August release in the U.S. They know they have to hit the Japanese release as the big one. They have till July 4th to finish the shooting. Carson talks about the script having so many revisions that it looks like a rainbow because we're using different color pages for every script rewrite. He literally falls asleep at the typewriter the day of the last shoot. He wakes up and they're like, dude, we're done. We're wrapped up. Time to go home. Um, wow. Hooper is editing as they're shooting to make this thing work because he's told like, they're like, we're going to take this away from you. And Canada, I think, eventually does. And they just throw in as much gore and blood. They they have to make it like a movie length, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, they just throw anything they can at it. So much so that the movie is released unrated. Right. Now, do you because... know what problems that causes? <laughs> well, I know. I mean, distribution is probably a big one. Um, cause you can't get an unrated or a rated X film distributed as widely as you would a rated R film. Um, but I mean, apparently like they didn't have time to submit for like multiple MPAA reviews and the MPAA wasn't going to budge. Yeah. So just like, fuck it. We'll release it unrated. Yep. I guess. Yeah. It's basically that like Hooper says it's probably the stuff with LG is what, because, you know, it's it's a lot gorier than the first. We're going to definitely talk about that. But Hooper mm. thinks specifically it was the number of, like, shots to the head that, like, Bill Mosley, the chop top delivers to LG. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably what did the movie in. But Cannon's like, we got to hit that date, so we'll release it unrela- unrated. Which means almost no advertising. Most theaters aren't going to show it in theaters if it's not rated right so it's a pretty big come down it's like a five million dollar budget still turns a profit still does like eight million bucks so it's a hit plus Mm -hmm. they're getting that japanese money like for so it basically makes its budget back just from that okay and i imagine that this is huge on the video circuit oh 100 percent. how could it not be yeah so you have something that's a Despite all of these troubles, it's still a pretty big moneymaker for Canon at a time when they're not making any money. Right. 
But enough about that. Enough about how the sausage is made, as it were. How is the chili made? Mm-hmm. Right? We've done that. You got it. It's prime meat. Secret is meat. Yeah. Secret is meat. What do we think of this movie? Let's talk about what we love about this movie. Let's talk about what we notice and hear some running themes in it. Um, first off, like, how much do you love this movie just announcing its in- intentions straight away by parodying the iconic poster from John Hughes' The Breakfast Club? I adore it. I think it, I mean, when I first saw it before I knew what any of this franchise was, I was like, I don't understand. Is this movie a joke? Like, cause it's clear what they're doing. Is this intentional? Um, yes, it is. And it's great. Um, yeah. Like I absolutely adore, but I don't know what, at, I mean, if, if we're looking back, like people in 1986 who have a relationship with the original film, see this poster. I don't know what the hell those people are thinking. I really don't. Um, I mean, the film as it is feels again, so starkly different in so many ways um, that I don't, I, I don't know. Like you look at this poster, you go into this movie, you're expecting something very much akin to the original. And then you get this. And <laughs> I just don't know, like, what do you think of that? Is, is that part of the reason it doesn't develop the word of mouth and get the, the butts in the seats the way that the original did. You know, it's because there's so much time in between. It's not like the Friday the 13th movies are cranking one out every year. Like every between year, yeah. 1980 and 1986, I think the only year they didn't release a movie was 1982. Like mm. their Paramount is just like churning through them. Oh, yeah. Um, you have two Elm Street movies already with a third on the way. There's like a th- only a three-year gap between Halloween and Halloween 2, mm-hmm. and that would have been a movie that played mainstream theaters and was in theaters constantly. And was like, I remember watching Halloween 2 on just local UHF stations. Like every October, Halloween 2 would be on. So we had seen that. I don't know. I just, because like VCRs are just starting to become a thing. Gotcha. Right, you know, yeah. it's like really like the dawn of like that VHS era. Texas Chainsaw had been out in '74, had been re-released a few times, including like 1980, 81. I wonder how many people in '86 getting in like the market for this is teenagers. Mm-hmm. So like they would have been like two, three years old when the original. How many would have actually have been able to see it? Because it ain't on TV. Like, that's mm-hmm. one thing about this movie, the original movie. Like, it ain't playing on TV. No. You know, and I feel like horror is different now in that, like, when you're a horror fan as a kid, you're a horror fan for life. Because right. you have access to, like, all the things from your childhood that you might not. I think, like, a lot of people might agree. And I think that's why you see, like, from the early 80s to the late 80s, in early 90s why so many of the iconic slasher movies peter out because like the market for them people had aged out of it right right like if you were going to see friday the 13th part two an opening weekend in 1981 by the time jason goes to hell rolls around like now you've gone from being a teenager to maybe someone who's 30 with a kid and a family on your own is that how you're spending your friday night right yeah 
it's a completely different completely different way of of mm-hmm. marketing at that point mm-hmm. so i had put you know it's a big shift I, I feel it's a big shift i think you might disagree like talk I to me about back that. and forth mm-hmm. yeah so i mean you know i would say there is a tonal shift i mean but the dark humor is always there and i think i, I think devon mentioned this in your last episode um, like the dark humor that kind of pervades the original film. I think people are too disturbed by what they're seeing to get it, like to really latch onto it. And so I think it goes unnoticed. And I think that frustrated Hooper in large degree, which is like, like just make this a full on horror comedy and we'll just go ahead and, 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 and lean into that. Like, and and I've got some thoughts on on kind of the rest of the franchise and the sequels, as it were. But like, the sequels don't do that like nearly as much. Like three, four, like they've got their goofier moments, sure, but they're not as clearly comedic as this one. So I think this feels like a weird outlier because Hooper's stepping on the gas so much. But I think that's always been present in the franchise. Mm-hmm. But again, due to kind of the inconsistency, due to the fact that the first was so disturbing, it kind of went over people's heads. I don't think people are really like, oh, okay, I'm ready to laugh at a Texas Chainsaw movie. Uh, And so you go and this just feels weird by association then as a result. Yeah, I I understand what Hooper is saying when he talks about wanting to be more overt with this comedy, wanting it to be more in the nose because people did not see the humor and the first one because it was too scary. And it took like years for me to see the comedy in that movie. And then mm-hmm. when you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. It's kind of like Ethan. Is it Ethan? Ethan Supley and Mallrats. The sailboat. Just yeah. looking for that sailboat. It's a shoot. <laughs> this is a schooner. Schooner is a sailboat. Asshole. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like that. Like once you see it you can know like oh yeah there it is like he was right like the hitchhiker blowing raspberries and kicking the van right in futility um everything in the dinner party scene is like the dinner, per- yeah the dinner party in particular funny. is it's so it's just so deranged like mm-hmm. like yeah it should be disturbing but it's also so right. funny right just like the cook running back into the gas station to turn off the lights going like damn electricity costs will put a small businessman out of business. You know, (laughs) like that's your worry right now, sir. Like that's what we're talking about. Um, We're here. It is. But at the same time, like as he's saying that there's a young woman in a burlap sack getting hit with a broom handle Mm -hmm. and her brother has just been carved up and her friends have just been hung from meat hooks and, 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 carved up with like a ginsers so you're kind of like it's hard to see the humor until you've really watched the movie right where here it's so number one like the the victims are so unlikable from the get-go oh just like they're not developed they're on screen for like four minutes like you might as well just hang signs like victim one, victim two. You know, <laughs> you don't spend time with them like you do with like the gang of hippies in the first movie. Right. Um, so that's one of the things. Um, you just get like this pervasive sense. Like everything is so over the top in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's so ridiculous. 
um, that it's like apparent right away. It does feel like a lot more silly. It, yeah, I mean, you you start with Buzz and Rick the Prick uh, shooting a revolver at road signs from a moving car in the middle of Texas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're watching this the, the week after the 4th of July. And I'm thinking, is there anything more American than driving down a Texas freeway, shooting a gun at road signs out of a moving car? Mm-hmm. I don't think there is. I really don't. That may be the most yeah. American thing to ever happen. Yeah, and Buzz is wearing those, like, silly x-ray specs. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, the girls at blah, 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 high school are so stuck up. Yep. And they're just like, oh, my God, I hate you so much and want oh, you yeah. to, to fucking die. And you don't have to wait long, which is great. No, that's the best part, right? So whereas in the first movie, like, you spend a good amount of time with the five youths of that mm-hmm. movie. And... I mean, again, aside from Franklin, who I think upon constant rewatches does become more sympathetic, I do still have him pegged as one of the more annoying characters in horror movie history. I think only supplanted in this franchise by one of the characters in the latest movie. Um, Mm -hmm. But you do also get a lot more sympathetic towards him on rewatches and I think Nicole did a really good job of like pointing out specific moments but so by and large like you like this crew of people like we're not at the stage where you're following characters around just to see them killed like that has not been established yet it's not a trope yet here like you spend no time with them and before you know it one of them has like half of their skull sliding down his face you know and you get that reverse shot with the blood um, spurting up out yeah, of the top of his head. Which, so good. There's more blood in that 15 seconds than there is in all of the first movie. Correct. So you kind of know what you're in for at that point, right? Mm-hmm. So it, uh, it's a weird movie. But I, I will say the one thing I do like about this movie, like there are no female victims in this movie. I love it. I absolutely love that. Um, it is. It's one of the things I tend to dislike about slashers is just how misogynistic they seem to be. And that and I know this probably fits more into the like the backwoods cannibal genre mm-hmm. than the slasher genre, but whatever. It, it This is a slasher. Okay. Thank you. It I think it still works. I think there's enough similarities there you can mm-hmm. we can count this. I had yeah. a friend who got into a big argument with me one time about this and I I I didn't care enough to argue, but what a thing to argue about. My 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 buddy Sam, hi Sam, if you're listening, has very strong opinions about everything. So I just, I, you know, just let him have opinions. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, like slashers tend to be kind of inherently misogynistic, and I think maybe maybe based on a, a poor reading of of Halloween, I'm not sure why. We could probably dig into that later or something. I don't know if you really want to do that. Um, but I like the way that Hooper goes out of his way to really subvert that here. And I think it's part of the reason why, and we'll get into this later, stretch is one of the all time great final girls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I, I think there's some inherent misogyny in a lot of slasher movies, but I think that it's like playing into the, the time period. A lot of what you have is, hey, we have horny teenage boys that want to see this movie. Sure. And 
we need to put nudity in the movie. We need to put sex in the movies because, like, that's the only way. Like, it was a big calling card. Like, it was a big. Absolutely. And again, yeah. like, both the Hoopers movies, like, both Texas Chainsaws, like, there's no, even though there's a lot more sexuality in this movie, which we'll get to. Yes. There's no nudity in either of the Texas Chainsaw Massacres. You get, like, I know Terry Mc, Mc, uh, McMinn did, did not want to wear those short shorts. Like, she was not told, like, hey, this is going to be your quote-unquote outfit, as little as there is there to it. But, like, there is not any, like, explicit nudity in either, you know. And even Caroline Williams, like, she talks about one of the PAs, like, gave her, like, a thong to wear under her, like, booty shorts. And she's like, you know, you look at it now, and it's almost quaint how little skin there is compared to what you see on broadcast television now. I mean, in a few years... You're gonna have um, Andy Sipowitz like showing his bare ass, you know. I was NYPD gonna say that Franz blue. ass, yeah. <laughs> you know, Dennis Franz like almost hanging dong on ABC. Um, good for him. Good for him. Yep. So it's it's different. It's definitely different. But there's like there are no female victims in this, and I know like I, I've read Carol Clover's book. And she talks about how like final girls take on the characteristics of males because like they're using weapons like knives and needles that are like phallic. And I'm like, well, you need a weapon and like weapons tend to be sharp. And it's mm-hmm. not like you can have like Owen Hart versus, you know, Mick Foley having a quote unquote hardcore match where they're trying to make each other laugh by hitting each, each other with popcorn bags and <laughs> selling it like they've been hit with a cannonball. You know, like, so I don't know if I've ever bought into the whole, like, oh, it's phallic. It's like, no, it's just like, it's a fucking weapon. Like, you have to use something. Um, But it's like, it definitely stands out. Like, and there's only three victims. Right. It's like not a body count type of movie. Like, there are a massively long stretch where there's like no violence in this movie. It's just Mm -hmm. weird as shit. Yeah, which I kind of love. Like, I kind of love that about this movie is... You're kind of looking forward to when that, but after LG dies, like you have no deaths until the Sawyer family and, and lefty kind mm-hmm. of eat it there at the end. And that's yeah. mostly a giant explosion except for yep. crop top. But yeah, I mean, yeah. And I mean, you do get, I guess, you know, Leatherface gets run through with the, the chainsaw and you, Drayton gets it up the butt and all that. So, I mm-hmm. mean, you do get some of that, but yeah. Yeah. I don't even count them as victims. I just count that as like your final battle royale. Like you don't have like the fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> but let's let's talk about this opening scene because I think it okay. is fantastic. Um, it's again shot really well. It's gorgeous. Like that mm. that bridge that goes on forever. Um, you have these like two complete pricks. Talk about this choice of choose like why were yuppies like such a good target to to lampoon and to root against in this movie i mean they're culturally speaking in the late 80s they're everywhere you've got kind of this reagan era affluence that you know this idea that everyone can and should be wealthy and the people that are really perpetrating that that are really perpetuating that are these young urban professionals these yuppies and they're like literally the opposite side of the coin from from the hippies, which kind of makes them in, in a lot of ways, I think this movie is the opposite side of the coin from the original. And so it makes them kind of the perfect target. Mm-hmm. Plus they are to the eighties 
the late 80s, what hippies were to the early 70s. They're just kind of this obnoxious, like, I don't know, pestilence upon the land, I guess you might say. Mm -hmm. Just they're fucking everywhere, man. And you can't like Hooper goes to the mall and it's just I mean, it's the mecca of consumerism and it's filled with those who worship at the altar of consumerism Mm -hmm. who are the yuppies, which is, again, why I kind of peg this as Hooper's statement on the Reagan era. Like you've got uh, Drayton Sawyer is now running a catering business. And so he's very concerned about where his money's coming from, about, like you said earlier, putting out the product. You've got Crop Top uh, espousing the virtues of the almighty dollar or Chop Top. Sorry, I keep Mm -hmm. wanting to call him Crop Top, Chop Top. Um, espousing the virtues of the almighty dollar like this you kind of bake that into the cake and the villains of your movie are now these espousing these reagan era economic ideals and um hooper's like nah fuck that we'll just cut him up with a chainsaw yeah like that's his answer and it works really well it does um what do you think of the idea of like if pam and kirk and um jerry lived they would grow up to be these people. Like this is like the, like buzz and and the other dude, like they would be their kids basically. Like that's what you, I I think what you saw in the, in the, the shift from the seventies to the Mm eighties is like the flower children of the sixties, the hippies of the sixties and seventies. They grew up like that boomer generation grew up to be the yuppies of the eighties. And then like the toxic conservative boomers of the current day correct you, i mean going back to john hughes like there's that quote from the breakfast club like when you get old does your heart die mm-hmm. you know and like that's what it feels like it feels like these kids would have been the children of you know pam and and, and kirk if they it's family ties yeah mm-hmm. family ties it's you know it's alex p keaton who's the the son of these two you know, flower children. And he's, you know, just the the biggest Reagan era Republican that there is. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just kind of, I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And I think this movie just kind of puts that on display. It's like, Hey, here you go. This is, this is where we are now. Yeah. These are the targets now. And it stands to read, like there is so much transgressive art that mm. is coming out of the early to mid eighties, like during the Reagan era, even like movies like, you know, you get movies that obviously celebrate like machismo and like rah, rah American, you know, ingenuity and jingoism, like commando. Like I love commando, but it's basically like a one man wrecking crew. It's like a one man advertisement for like the U S military. Top it? gun is the greatest advert for like the Navy that that's why they were so cooperative. Hell yeah. Uh, was it Rambo three? The one where he, he uh, helps the Taliban mm-hmm. and, and at the end of the movie, Sylvester Stallone's like, Hey, this is for the brave men and women of the Taliban fighting Russia. Right. And you're like, which Fuck. they were the good guys. Like we had given them, like we had funded them. Like they yep. were using our own weapons against us. But you have a movie like say first blood, which looks, which is a lot more of a damning indictment on the U.S. military industrial complex. Like, look at what we've allowed our soldiers to come home to. Look how we treat them. Like, it is a much more sobering look. You know, then you go to that to, like, Rocky Four. Like, Rocky wins the Cold War all by himself. Yeah, but how would have, we know like, who won mm-hmm. the Cold War if not for Rocky Four? Right. Come on. 
but you have like the start of like you know David Chow doing like splatter punk. Mm. You have like this really transgressive art, and like you know, like punk gives way to hardcore from like the late seventies. Like the nihilism of punk mm. gives away to like a much more like of a call to action through a lot of regional scenes and like DC and Boston and Los Angeles and Texas, where you have like the butthole surfers and millions of dead cops and bands like that, that are like having a very political look at like what is going on during the Reagan area and being like, fuck this. Mm -hmm. And you have artists like, especially within the horror genre, Toby Hooper, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, looking at like whether it's like small town America or the backwoods or what's go you have them looking at like, here's where our country is at right now. It's a much more deep, even like Joe Dante with gremlins, like deconstructing like smug Bedford falls, which is a stand in yep. for it's a wonderful life mm -hmm. saying like, no, this is all bullshit. Yeah. Like this, like city in the shining hill is bullshit. And like, we are going to, take this down as many pegs as we can and what's fascinating to me is like we live in an era now which is like much worse than the 80s i mean like much much worse and mm -hmm. yet i am still waiting for that transgressive cinema to come to the forefront i think i'm going to be holding my breath for a long time i th i think you will i think anything modestly transgressive is being done on television anymore mm -hmm. and there's so much tv that most people are probably not watching it like i just finished season three of the boys and it feels like one of the more transgressive mm -hmm. things on television and you know compared to some of the some of the movies that are coming out of the 80s not so much i mean there's yeah. significantly more you know male nudity but that's about it yeah and i just wonder if and this is not a bad thing if a lot of what the art that we have now is so much more inward looking mm. and it's so much more personal or I feel like movies like this are much more extroverted. There's like nothing about this movie, I think, where Hope Hooper is making a very personal statement about himself. Like right. he's not exploring his own inner demons, whereas you look at a movie like, an, like Ari Aster or Jennifer Kent or Karen Kunsama when they're dealing with grief or trauma, which, hey, I am totally okay if we have take a break from every movie is about individual trauma. Yes. I am totally fine if we put a moratorium on that for a few years. Yeah, even three um, years would be great. Yeah, be great. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> um, but they're much more navel-gazing and inward-looking mm -hmm. um, than they are exploring the world around them. And part of me thinks that it's it. Is it from exhaustion? Is it just from like there is so much bullshit being thrown at us from so many different angles at all times? It's impossible to catch up with it all. And by the time you say something about the moment right now, we've gone six steps worse. Right. And we don't know. Like that problem is like we can't even focus on it anymore because like now we're like eight steps more into descending into hell. And it feels like it feels like something that you would if you were to write it into a movie, people would be like, oh, well, that's too unbelievable. But it is literally the world in which we're living in now. So like, how do we how do we exaggerate this? How do we expound on this? Like, we can't. So we'll just turn inward and do what we can with what we have, which is this dumpster fire and try to make some cinema with that. So all that to say, 
you get this fantastic introduction of Leatherface this time around where he's dancing around with Nubbins, you know, which is the hitchhiker right. uh, who gets a meal with Nubbins. The, the corpse of the hitchhiker dancing around in the back of the pickup truck. Um, and so you get good. that great reveal where it's like head gets shot off and then you see just like the face, like the mask. Um Oh, love that and then you get just like with the the hook you never see the saw cut into the head you think you do but you pan away and then you get that reveal of like mm-hmm. uh his head just sliding down his sliding down the gullet at that point it's fantastic yeah i i absolutely love that first kill it's it is in so many ways it is everything that the first movie was and everything that it wasn't all Mm -hmm. at the same time, because you don't get the violence. The violence is all suggested, but you do get the gore, which is something the first movie never did. And so you kind of know right off the bat, Mm -hmm. I'm in for a completely different experience. Like the victims are different. The kills are different. The way that the villains are presenting themselves is different. Like everything is kind of, Again, it's it's like a dark mirror image of the original film uh, intentionally. I think I think Hooper is is playing with our expectations on here, which is part of the reason why I like it so much. Like he's like, I can make the exact opposite movie and it'll still be good. And I yeah. think that's ultimately what he ends up doing. And I, I love him for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great bookend. It is a fun bookend. It's something where I think it would be really hard to replicate the feel of the first movie. So why not just do something completely different? Absolutely. Um, so we, we cut back. Now, here's my question. Dennis Hopper is lefty. Mm-hmm. How much, how how many cocaines, you know, is Dennis Hopper on during this movie? All of the cocaines, Mike. There is not a doubt in my mind he is doing all of the cocaines. Honestly, I think he used Frank Booth's stash on this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Wow, it's something. It you get is. Lefty, and he's like, "Just don't make me look ridiculous." And you see him in this little like the what do you call those ties? The bowly ties. The bolo ties. The bolo yeah. ties. The ten gallon cowboy hat, and you get one of the great. And this is a real, like, I guess, like the the chainsaw store is mm-hmm. a real shop. That was the real shopkeeper who was just like, and he supplied them. I mean, he like made out like a bandit because it was probably close to like a six figure chainsaw budget when all was between like repairs and new chainsaws. And like he kept them like fat and happy. But, you know, that scene where Hopper just like lays out wads of cash and is like doing the dueling mini chainsaws. He just goes like completely ape shit on that log out on out in front of the store. Like mm-hmm. absolutely unbelievable. Like I, yeah, I mean, Dennis Hopper shithead, um, total like drug fueled nightmare person, uh, phenomenal actor though, like phenomenal actor. Like he is just giving it and I am here for it. A like guy, I love what he's yeah. doing here. A guy that really, fucked his career for a good decade and a half coming Mm -hmm. off of easy rider just like buying into his own bullshit and being like unworkable for like a decade and a half 
uh, but then had a, a, a career resurgence in the mid 80s that was not derailed by this movie. You know, I think if this movie had not come out, like if, if Blue Velvet had not come out in the same year, I think it might have done. Yeah. But I think Blue Velvet, I mean, he gets Oscar nominated for Blue Velvet and rightly so. Like his mm-hmm. performance in that movie is unhinged and magnificent. Yeah. Like it, it's one of the most terrifying performances I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I love it. Um, but I mean, that that I think is the thing that really creates that resurgence for him. And I, mm-hmm. I think if Blue Velvet had not come out right after this, I, I don't think he, he would have no. had that resurgence. No. Playing uh, Lefty, playing Sally in Franklin's uncle mm-hmm. slash special investigator, you know, like. Right. And it's funny because. He's like, I've been hunting them for like 30, like 30, for 12 years. It's like, dude, they're right in front of you. Like, they're not that hard to find. Right. Right. They're you hiding know? in plain sight. Like, they're right. right there. I mean, like, I I know we have the crawl at the beginning of the movie where they're like, they couldn't find the house. And I'm like, really? Like, it's kind of on a main road. You know, like it was right. pretty busy at five in the morning. There's like trucks going by and some mm-hmm. dude in a pickup truck. Like this is not like a tucked away road. Like, no, it's pretty hopping. Like, and even if Sally couldn't pick it out, the dude driving like black mama and mm-hmm. the dude in the pickup truck could probably be like, yeah, just like bang a right back on the interstate. And right. you'll see the house with all the chicken bones in it. Like, it's pretty obvious which one it is when you walk inside. Right. Just look for the dead body that's been run over by an 18 wheeler and then turn right into the driveway. Like, that's right. all you need to do. Well, I mean, so, obviously, they took that dead body so that they could use it as true uh, a for kill nubbins. prop. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I'm. We don't I mean, we don't really know what happens to the house because we don't see it again until I think next generation. Mm-hmm. Like the house doesn't really factor in at all in parts. Two I don't or think three. it's in next. I don't think it's the same house in next generation either. It's oh. like not. Yeah, He's they, make like, it, they try to make it look like it. Maybe I think, at least. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but then, I mean, and after that, you don't really even see it again until the end of the most recent film in the, in right. the post credit scene. So Which, like that house has been picked up and moved to a different town and it's now a barbecue joint. Huh. Okay. Yeah. That's a choice. <laughs> it's a, and it's a beautiful house. Like that's yeah. the thing, like rewatching this, the first movie, I'm like, Oh, I would live in that house. And people did live there and they're like, please don't fuck up our house. And Toby Hooper's like, we won't fuck up your house. <laughs> and then to they fuck just up house. <laughs> totally fucked up their house. Um, Look what your brother did to the door. But you compare like that movie to the remake. When you look at that house and you're like, I wouldn't go in there. Like nothing good is going to come from walking in that door. Correct. You don't get that vibe looking at the exterior of the original. Right. It's it's only once you get into mm-hmm. the interior and you open up, you know, Leatherface's kill room that you're like, oh, fuck, like this is a, this mm-hmm. is I should not be here right now. Right. And by that point, you're too late. Um, but but yeah. Don't, but, mm-hmm. go oh, ahead. Sorry, your turn. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was like, not only are the Sawyers like hiding in plain sight, like Drayton Sawyer is a celebrity. He yeah. He's like a beloved member of the community. He is the local chili king of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Mm-hmm. 
And again, not a small under the radar, you know, you can hide away backwoods area. Like he's the dude in front of like Cowboy Stadium, you know, going like what goes better on a hot summer day than a steaming bowl of chili down the gullet. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like he is. I mean, there's this like tiny chili cook off from like Oklahoma and, and Texas on the on the border there there's like news crews like i've i've not seen at like major sporting events like there's mm -hmm. like huge like media picking up this event like stretch and lg are there but there's also film crews and like everybody is is there so that we can see drayton sawyer except this giant trophy with a pot of chili on top mm -hmm. of it like wild yeah and telling everyone the secret is the meat you can't Don't skimp on the skimp meat, on the meat. No, and he loves that town. And I will say this: like I've been to Dallas, and that is a town that loves its meat. I completely buy it. Like you look particularly at the Texas barbecue scene, which is what it was in the first film. It was it was barbecue. That's all. That's all cow. That's all brisket. Like it's mm -hmm. it's almost entirely beef. Like they are. Texas is a is a beef state for yeah. sure. I remember going to Dallas on a business trip with like the whole crew. And we hitting a stick, hitting a steak joint. And we had like our company dinner where all of the members from all over the country were there for this meeting. And the woman next to me is like, oh, you're not eating like whatever the company provided for like the little get together. I'm like, yeah, we're not going to eat this slop. Like we're going to a steak joint as soon as this is done. And she was the woman responsible for putting the dinner together. Mm. So whoops. But we turned in like a $900 meal to expense. And our boss is like, what the fuck? And we're like, you would have done it back in the day. He's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'll write it off. So that's all we had to say. He's like, yeah, you know, you would have boss. Come on. And he's like, ah, all right, you're right. Um, if you were there, you'd be the one saying, let's go, everybody. That's what he did. Like he would not like we would book like we'd go to like Cedia and other conferences he would like book the wine room, which is private. And then we had like one employee. So we're ordering like high end steak and like high end Italian. And then we'd have like one guy who was like, do you have like chicken fingers, spaghetti with the meat sauce? And the boss just get out, just get the fuck out of here. You're fired. You're not allowed. <laughs> we're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I don't. <laughs> I do not understand that at all. I really no. don't. It does, does not make sense to me. No. Um, but the Sawyers, like, they're hiding in plain sight. Drayton is having the time of his life, but still extolling all of the problems of the... Again, like, he's not wrong. But the funny thing is, like, it is the small business person who takes it up the ass. Like, they don't mm -hmm. get the big tax breaks. They It's a lot harder for them to stay solvent, like... And he ain't cutting corners with that meat. You know, no. he's using top, you know, top choice. Prime meat, I mean, yeah. You know, when you look at LG and you're like, LG probably would taste pretty good. You know? Yeah. I mean, probably you know? some really nice marbling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that said, we I think we get the, the, to me, the best stretch of the movie is in this radio station. Mm. What do we think of stretch? as a final girl for her introduction and her resiliency. Like what do we make of Caroline Williams a stretch? 
Uh, Stretch is probably my number three final girl of all time. After, Ooh. yeah, after Sydney Prescott and uh, Laurie Strode. Wow. So I think Stretch is fantastic. Uh, everything I want out of a final girl, Stretch absolutely delivers. I was really mm-hmm. out on Stretch at the beginning. I, I've come around to Stretch on subsequent rewatches. Um, Carolyn Williams may be one of the best screamers in the game. Mm-hmm. Like the way she just unrelentingly, in particularly in that scene in the radio station where she's locked in uh, the records room um, and Leatherface is like, sawing at the big metal door and she's just screaming and screaming and screaming nonstop. And I'm just like, like she's selling both the horror and the comedy all at the same time. Every time she opens her mouth to let out one of those giant blood curdling screams, um, she has agency. Like she has, um, like she saves herself lefty cuts her free, but she does everything else. Like she is in, in, in a lot of ways more heroic at the end of the day than lefty is. Um, she's not just, you know, the, the TNA that we would normally expect for a female to be, you know, that, that to be filling that role in this type of movie. Like she actually has, agency she's the one that you know kills chop top at the end she's the one you know and the reversal the beautiful reversal at the end where she's the one standing on top of this mountain with this chainsaw doing basically her version of leatherface's frustrated chainsaw dance from the original film like it's such a crazy reversal and at that point like you absolutely believe that given everything that she's just been through given everything that she's overcome given the fact that she's basically had to kind of play along with the fumbling advances of this you know sophomoric you know mentally challenged cannibal person um that she's going to, you know, wield that chainsaw like to absolutely nothing and just give that primal scream uh, for the ages. Like, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. And I, I, I don't I love stretch. What can I say? Stretch feels much better equipped to handle the madness of the Sawyers than Sally did. And like, you know, they yeah. make it a point like this movie kind of confirms like when the opening crawl, like Sally went into a catatonia. Like I've always said, like at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like Sally's body has left the home, but the mind never did. Like no, nope, right. no coming back from that. And honestly, that comes through in Marilyn Burns's performance of that yeah. final moment as well. Like mm-hmm. that, that is a thousand yard stare to end all thousand yeah. yard stares. You see it. From the moment she jumps out the window after seeing the grandfather and like the grandmother whose face has been peeled off, and I believe mm-hmm. that's what Leatherface is wearing, uh, with like the 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 uh, dinner face, the dinner mm. scene. I think that's what he's wearing. You see her like from the moment she jumps out of that window and pops up, like her body is on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Right. You see it in her eyes. You see it in the way that she's running. You see it when she hits the tree branch and then like springs up. Like it's almost mm-hmm. like she's on like a it's almost like she's on like a spring load bearer. Like, boom. Um, she doesn't necessarily she has her wits about her and like never stops moving. And that's why she survives. But like there's not a lot of thinking that's right. going on here. And here with stretch, like you see the wheels constantly turning. Absolutely. And she's like not only. 
she's really good at re- reading people. Like she's very sweet to LG, but she's also like, don't call me darling. Like mm-hmm. she's not going to play like the man's game. Like, nope, my name is stretch. Don't call me darling. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like, I want to help out when lefty is like very dismissive of her. And she could easily be like, Hey, here is this crazy fucked up thing that happened whoa like any of us like i ain't playing that tape on the radio i'm like nope i don't want any part of this and she's like how do i help what do i need to do right to your point like a lot more agency but then you get that scene with her in leatherface when she's like sitting in the ice cold tub of beer love that by the way like in the back of the station you just have like in a tub of ice oh that's with some beer. cold ones in it What's that's in big red that What's is big, big red? red. It is a it's a it's a soda. It's like a red cream soda. Interesting. It's a it's a big Texas thing. There's some of it. it, it it's trickled up here to to the Midwest as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that is a tub of big red. I was looking okay. at those cans pretty closely. Interesting. OK, but you have this in the back. Of, again, you have that big metal door. You're the in the first movie, you slam that door shut and you never see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And this time around, it's actually keeping him out. So he just bursts through the wall. Kool-Aid man style, which is great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so you have her like. In this moment of absolute like I would just be like game over, I guess this is it. I'm meeting my maker. Her wheels are turning and she's mm-hmm. like. Are you mad at me? And she sees like what is Leatherface, but a big overgrown boy mm-hmm. in this. So as we talk about Stretch, let's talk about that interplay with her and Bill Johnson. What do we think of him as like pubescent Leatherface, basically? I mean, you you made a point earlier to say that you don't necessarily see weapons as necessarily phallic, but this case you do. You this I mean. He is, and I said this to a friend of mine earlier as I was watching this movie, I texted her and I was like, yeah, there's Leatherface is essentially using his chainsaw right now as an extension of his penis. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a clear metaphor. It's insanely apt in this moment. Like he is like drooling, he's licking his lips. He's got, you know, just this wild look in his eye and he is just very slowly running that blade against her exposed Mm -hmm. thigh basically just kind of running it up as close as he can to her her special area and it's like and she is she is in control like it is very clear based on what she's saying and how he's responding and how she's saying what she's saying that she is completely how good you are Yes. Show me how right. good you are. Are you good? How good are you? In the moment that she takes control, he can't start the chainsaw anymore. Exactly. Like, no matter how much he pulls at it, it won't work. Mm-hmm. And you see that kind of like he's no longer in control of the situation. He, for the first time, is like feeling something for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And because she's been able to turn the tables because she's been able to like take his power away from him. He can't perform. And no matter how many times he tugs at that string, that thing ain't starting up. That thing ain't revving. Like he's gone impotent. Uh, And that to your point, like, yes, this is like a time I will agree that the instrument of the weapon in this case is definitely a symbol for the, the phallus. And that's, Oh yeah part of what may and stretch is able to use 
that femininity, that power multiple times in this movie. And it's what saves her, you know, up until the point where he can't no longer can, you know, she doesn't have any control by the end, but she's bought enough time. Um, But before that, before you get that scene, you get the the introduction of, of, oh, you know, before we do that, what do we think of the difference? Because Leatherface is played by Gunnar Hansen is mm. like an overgrown child. Like I've described him as, as autistic um, between like the stemming, between the self-soothing, between like the nonverbal communication that has a very dedicated purpose in like if you know him really well, you can understand what he's saying because you know the tics, the mannerisms and the patterns of his speech. But there is something that is de- like to me the most powerful scene of that movie is when Gunnar Hansen as Leatherface runs to the window after killing Jerry and is in a panic. Like he's running his hands through his hair, he's peering out the curtain, like he is afraid. And the reason he's lashing out at everybody coming into his home is he's afraid. Here, conniving isn't the right word, and mm-hmm. scheming isn't the right word. But this is a leather face that like definitely like there are things that I want and I am going to like try to get them however I can. And whether that's like disobeying Chop Top and disobeying Drayton or bargaining with them, like you see him like actually bargaining with them in this movie when he's trying to save Stretch and you don't see that in the first movie. Right. There's a I don't know if if we would say that Leatherface kind of has some, some more agency in mm-hmm. this film. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's a very different performance. And, and again, I'll speak to kind of my, my Leatherface theory and my sequel theory a little later. Um, but just the idea that we've got now a Leatherface who is, it almost feels like, if, if the Leatherface from the first film is very childlike, this is, and again, this goes along with kind of the, the pubescent, horny Leatherface that we talked about a second ago. Like, he's growing up a little. Maybe this is his teenage rebellion of sorts. Um, like, there's still the things that carry through, like the nonverbal um but but maybe this is maybe this is a Leatherface who's, who's gotten a little older, who now mm-hmm. wants different things, who knows how to try to get what he wants a little more. I mean, 12 years have passed between those films. Who's what, who's to say Mm -hmm. what kind of, I guess, um, what kind of development he's undergone in that time. Yeah. And there's like a different dynamic with him and chop top. You don't really see the hitchhiker and Leatherface interact with one another. Like they work together to like bring grandpa downstairs, but they're never really, communicating with one another with like chop top is like the cool big brother mm-hmm. who is like, you got her like, give me some skin, like give me five right now. Like they, he's taking him on like the late night. like they're driving around in a pickup truck together, just like hitting the road, you know, like absolutely. Yeah. They're hanging out in Leatherface is seeing more of the world. And to that extent, like how fucking awesome is Bill Mosley is chop top in this movie. I Bill Mosley is, Love him he's great right like he's absolutely fantastic um i the 
I'm going to say something really weird right now. The first movie I ever saw Bill Mosley in was Repo the Genetic Opera, mm-hmm. uh, where he tries to sing. He's not a great singer, um, but he's very fun in that movie. Like, he's just really, like, big and mean and grouchy and grumpy, and it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this, he's playing some... He's it's completely different. Like you can tell this is kind of a parody of the hitchhiker just kind of in the way that he's talking and the way that he's interacting. But then the way that he like music is my life. Mm -hmm. She's my fave. Like all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like he is clearly processing everything through the lens of the culture. Like Mm -hmm. he's got a sunny Bono wig and he's got the little sunglasses on to cover up his, you know, metal plate. Like, Mm -hmm. And is you know wispy hair that's left like he's he's got kind of this cultural, I don't want to say appropriation because that's not the right word, but he's 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 literally clothing himself and um, disguising himself behind the culture as a way of trying to fit in, and it's not working because he's just so fucking weird. Yeah, and I absolutely love it. Like I think he is so funny. Like he, I think, is where we get most of the comedy just because he is so bizarre and so random. Now I'm flashback. Like, what the hell, dude? Like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now, but I love it. He's the dude who came back from numb and then dropped all of the acid Mm. and his brain is completely fried, you know, and I'm sure like having that metal plate in the hot Texas sun ain't helping out too much. You can almost... Mm -hmm feel the curdles in there kind of like percolating mm-hmm. and you could see him fitting right in with that original crew um to a certain extent if he wasn't so psychotic but you get like mostly is like a quote machine in yes. this movie you get like the lick my plate you dog dick just like <laughs> one of the best lines in any fucking horror movie um but everything with him is so exaggerated and so bizarre and so funny. Mm-hmm. Yet when he has to bring it, like when he drops that hammer on LG over and over and you just see like LG squirming and covered in blood and he's just screaming like incoming mail, you know, over um, and over and over again. God. It's, you know, in a different movie, like, that is a much more terrifying scene. Mm-hmm. Here, it's played, like, good for him. Like, he understands the tone of this movie. It never, like, the, it never stops being funny. I agree. It's unnerving. It's, you're squeamish. Um but you're still laughing because it's so ridiculous. It's disturbing in that something so horrific is being played for laughs, mm-hmm. but that doesn't stop it from being funny. And what disturbs you is the fact that you're laughing at this very right. disturbing thing, as opposed to the first movie where it's so disturbing, we can't even think to laugh. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, you're supposed to laugh and then be disturbed by the fact that you're laughing. Mm-hmm. Like it's great. And Chop Top is just having fun. Mm-hmm. Like, He's just like when he sees uh, Stretch in the when he sees like Stretch in like the the tunnels and he's like Bob's got a girlfriend. He's like mm. <laughs> singing over and over again. Um, there's just like this real joy to him. This is just like fun as his character. Like you really wish he came back for more of the movies. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I I feel like they try to do that with to a certain extent. Matthew McConaughey's character in Return 
Um, but it's, it's probably the it's, closest we get to that. And he's way too handsome to, you know, yes, even is. then it's like just Captain Handsome, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Which, you know, McConaughey has talked very fondly about making. We'll talk about that when we do the fourth movie. He's like, nah, man, it was a fucking blast. Like, love doing it. Yeah. Um, it was his agents that are like, you, you can't release this movie. Um, but he's just a blast to watch in this one of the greatest and mostly it's just someone that like elevates everything he's in he's just such a a character actor that is like so much fucking fun to watch a real jeffrey combs type yeah yeah without that shakespearean quality sure yeah he's he's a he's a jeff jeffrey combs of the people as it were what do we think of the climax of this movie? Because this is where I, and I don't have a lot about the back <laughs> half of this movie. Sure. Um, and we're kind of running a bit long as it we is, are. but it's like, just like they're in there forever. It feels like at a certain point, I'm just like, uh, get on with it. Yeah. I I mean, I like the ending. I like the way that it built. I particularly mm-hmm. like the climactic moment between stretch and chop top with Mm -hmm. the grandmother in particular like that is really really phenomenal and really Mm -hmm. disturbing and but also really fucking funny like all at the same time um but you know the stuff leading up to that like maybe a little little more editing probably could have saved this like i don't i'm not going to say this is a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination and yeah it does get a little long in the tooth but by the same token like it's goofy, silly, fun. Like the the dinner scene, which becomes kind of a staple in these movies going mm-hmm. forward. Uh, the fact that we're trying to get Grandpa to kill her again, and Grandpa still can't hold the hammer again. Mm-hmm. It keeps falling out of his hands limply. Um, again, is something phallic here? Maybe. I don't know. You tell me. When he throws the hammer and then falls like ass over tea kettle and doinks... <laughs> leather face in the head with it it's like uh-huh. that's entertainment right it's there. so so funny like and the like the 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 pan close up on his face when mm-hmm. when they're at the dinner table and all that stuff like i love all those little st- those highly stylized mm-hmm. choices that hooper's throwing in here right. as, as a way of saying this is not the other one forget the other one we're doing yep. something completely different here and just Drayton finally being like, oh, fucking get on with it. And like grabbing the hammer and like mm-hmm. whacking stretch over the head, like enough already. Like, which is the funny. thing he refused to do in the first right. movie. He like leaves the room like I can't watch this. And but can't then he's watch. like cackling from the door mm-hmm. still like, yeah. I mean, it's it's very much like mm-hmm. playing on, on kind of those ideas. And mm-hmm. but again, at the end of the day, like they they end up doing themselves in like. Yeah leather like grandpa throws the hammer leatherface gets hit in the head falls over and like starts hacking into into drayton who drops the grenade and blows everybody up like right. that's it it all kind of fucking comes undone because they don't know what the hell they're doing which again indictment of reagan era politics maybe yep <laughs> where um as a, as a lightsaber duel where in the star wars rankings would the lefty versus leatherface chainsaw battle for the ages rank uh i would put it um below the duel of the fates but above obi-wan and darth vader in a new hope sounds fair yeah great little battle triple chainsaws i love it so much you know hopper was like oh my god i look fucking ridiculous with these like two mini chainsaws 
going on here. Counterpoint, he looks fucking cool. (laughs) Yeah, I would say, like, dude wheeling a giant. And you get the the tagline of the third movie is spoken here when Sawyer says, you know, the saw is family. Like, that Mm -hmm. was the whole marketing and tagline. It's like what's on the saw of the third movie. Right. Um, You know, I think the highlight of the second half of this movie is Savini's work. And what's odd is like, I don't think of this as a movie people talk about when they talk about Tom Savini, but this is some of his like coolest shit. Like the stuff with LG alone when he's carved up, like is just fucking disgusting. The fact that LG is faceless, he's got like half of his side cut out and he's talking to Stretch who is wearing his face. Mm-hmm. and his hat like he's basically looking at himself talking to stretch keeps calling her darling like ju- like that's that's fucked up and it looks mm-hmm. so cool and it is entirely savini like grandpa is like even more disturbing and disgusting and mm-hmm. weird looking than he ever was in the first film and he's much more animated yes like you can see his facial expressions like the first film, you can tell it's just some dude in a mask. This, like, you can tell it's some dude in a mask, but that mask is able to move like a real dude's face, yeah. which yep. is kind of cool. The disembowelment scene with Leatherface mm-hmm. is just, like, with his guts pushed out, you're like, holy shit, that is yeah. outstanding. So it does feel like, you know, all right, part two is going to be the end. Like, this is a capper. Everyone's dead. We ain't coming back from this. Um, you had put a point here, you know, talking about, I think you're right. Like, this is a direct sequel and everything after this, like part three feels like a loose remake of the first movie. Mm-hmm. Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre definitely feels like a remake of the first movie. Oh, yeah. Then you get an actual remake. Right, the explicit remake. It was like, oh, you didn't get the humor of the first movie? Well, we'll just remove all of the humor of the first movie. Let's just make this the darkest, most dour Rob Zombie shit you can possibly imagine. And if if that movie's not dark enough for you, we'll do the prequel next. Um, And then you have like a reboot with Leatherface 3D. Mm-hmm. A prequel to the reboot with yep. Leatherface. And then you have a direct follow-up where they do the Hallow- the Blumhouse Halloween model. We're going to eliminate everything. And that one, they turn Leatherface into Michael Myers. It doesn't right. really... It feels more like a direct sequel to the remake in tone than it does like the original movie. Like It's weird. It's an odd... And I like that movie more than most. Like, I can kind of let things go a bit and be like, this is silly. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of dudes, like, Instagramming Leatherface and then getting carved up. Like, I can deal with that, you know? Sure. It's um, also one of the only films in this entire franchise that actually has a Texas Chainsaw Massacre in it. It's actually it's one of the few actual massacres. Right. Um, so everything after this is it feels like this franchise is always going in fits and starts. Where you look at Halloween and like you have the first couple movies and even four, five, and six, like they build on the first two. 
right? Yeah. And yeah. then you, so you have like these things that go in fits and starts, like Friday the 13th movies, like you, there's a continuity there that you can kind of sort of see if you squint. Right. Kind of right. loose, but still like Jason dies in four. He's not yeah. in five. They resurrect him in six. Like that's mm-hmm. continuity. Like it or not, that's yeah. continuity. Here there's like it's everything is so much all over the, the map. Well, and I mean, yeah. this one like tonally is so different from the first one. It almost feels like this is tr- an attempt to kind of reboot things. And then you get three and they're not even the Sawyers anymore. They're the Slaughters. And the fourth one. But they're like, the Slaughters in the first movie. Are they the Slaughters in the first movie? Oh, okay. I didn't know. That. I thought they were the Sawyers throughout. Uh, my fault. Um, but then you get like the fourth movie and it's like this complete left turn into absurdity that, yeah, that that may or may not be like a, Kim Henkel's reaction to what horror was in the 90s. Like you get kind of these, but everything feels like a reboot. And you'd think in like if it were if those were made today, they would just do them as reboots. Like they wouldn't bother with a sequel. They'd just reboot the damn thing. It's almost like there wasn't a language for that in the 80s and 90s. So, well, we'll make it a sequel, but we won't. It's a horror movie. Who cares about continuity? Just and so everything feels. And I talked to my co-host on Disenfranchised, Brett Wright, about this, and he had this notion that these films all kind of have this like backwoods Texas oral history kind of thing about them. Like these are not necessarily these stories. It's not maybe the same Leatherface, but these are the stories that kind of get whispered. And and I agree with that take. I think I've said that elsewhere too. Like, yeah, I've, I agree. I, that's been my take on it. It's like, these are the stories that are whispered in the dark, just like the stories of Ed Gein are whispered and nobody gets it kind of quite right. Um, and that's what this franchise kind of feels like for me. And I think that's one reason why this franchise does get wildly inconsistent. And one reason why continuity just isn't a concern in this franchise. It's kind of, the the headcanon I need to kind of explain that to myself. But yeah, I, I feel like all of these sequels, even this one, even to a degree, just feels like we're riffing on the original premise and not really doing a sequel. We're kind of rebooting in a different way. Yeah. I w- the last thing I have here in very quickly, like this has to be one of the worst scores of all time. Like when you think of how great sound is incorporated in that first movie i believe like jerry lampert who did the score for this along with hooper they don't really have time to do a score and they're just using like what sounds like a cheap casio keyboard like it sounds like it would be the score of like the atari 2600 game and it almost sounds like a cheap casio knockoff of the jaws score at times it's it's a tell me you're trying to it's do a John Carpenter so score, bad. but you've never heard a John Carpenter score kind of a thing. I know nothing about music, so I yeah I, I didn't think really Jerry Lambert is the guy that installed Toby Hooper's satellite dish. Like I'm not kidding. I think that's how he got the gig. He was like the satellite installer for Hooper, and it's like, hey, do you want to score a soundtrack? And it's really bad. So. That's all I've got. Anything else you want to bring up or are we good? Uh, no, I think that was my that was my big thing. Like I talked about kind of Hooper's intentionality and kind of going the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. I got to talk about what I thought about the sequels to this franchise. Like I feel I, I do want to say at one point Lefty does say, don't you cry, little sister, which mm-hmm. means 
this is probably not just uh, kind of the anti-Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's also the anti-Lost Boys as well. Yeah. Fair enough. They want Fair little sister to enough. cry and he does not. So. Excellent. So that is our take. That is our takedown of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, a movie with more meat on the bone than I think we thought we would go with when we first started this movie. Like it's a fun sequel. It has a lot of personal meaning to me. I really love this movie. I can't help it. I really do. Yeah. So, Stephen, besides our show, where can listeners find you? What are you cooking up on Disenfranchised? Oh, Disenfranchised. If you don't know by now, it's a show where my buddy Brett Wright and I talk about movies that were destined for franchise greatness until the movie came out, and then they weren't. Uh, So we are on our fourth consecutive theme month. We've done uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger April. We did... um, kind of an accidental fictional location may uh june we did jim henson movies and now we're in july we're going to japan uh so we're doing some japanese failed franchise starter we just as of the recording of this episode released our uzumaki episode by the time this comes out you might be able to find our ace attorney episode up as well um and we've got a patreon actually on our patreon we discussed on our at the five dollar level we discussed uh the uh, the fourth Texas Chainsaw movie, uh, The Next mm-hmm. Generation, uh, behind the paywall there. So that's up if you want to kind of hear our thoughts about that movie and hear Brett kind of espouse his urban legend theory. Um, Excellent. That's all behind the paywall. Patreon.com slash disenfranchpod. Disenfranchise podcast. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Facebook at disenfranchpod. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. Come find me and say Excellent. hi. And listeners, you know you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian. You can find our show at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. You can also uh, follow our site, podandthependulum.com. That's where we have all our back episodes. Uh, you can leave a review there as well. So if you haven't already, we just got a really nice review. Thank you, Robert, for some really kind words and a five-star review over our initial Texas Chainsaw episode. Like, Robert's been a longtime listener, and I really appreciate the review. That was very kind um it's the episode i'm the most proud of like i won't lie like it is i think when it's as when we're cooking like that is us at our peak um i i really enjoyed recording it but go ahead if you haven't already please leave and rate leave a review rate us five stars uh subscribe to us it does help new listeners find us which we really appreciate uh and that's it for this week. Like we are going to have probably a little bonus episode in between this and our cover uh, coverage of Leatherface Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. I'm going to have like some of the comings and goings of the Fantasia Film Festival. I'll be talking about some of the movies I've been able to catch. Uh, unfortunately, virtually, I planned on going and I am pulling back from traveling and I'm going to covering it virtually which makes me really sad but i will hopefully go up there next year but then we'll be back uh, a week after that with texas chainsaw massacre part three really fun one of vigo himself like a really bizarre fun movie and steven thank you again it is always a blast i love it thank you so much for having me and we are out we'll be right back.